we have to worship your holy name. And Lord, I ask that as we see you for who you really are, that you would be, uh, that you would be magnified in our lives. Thank you for this opportunity that we have now to continue in worship uh, through the study of your word. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and change our lives by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Good morning. Welcome to New Life. We are so excited that you're here. And we are in the middle of our sermon series that we're calling Family Tree. And what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus' family tree in Matthew chapter 1. And we're seeing what Jesus' family tree teaches us about the family of God. And I love how Matthew opens up in this book by going through the family tree because really what you're seeing is you're seeing the story of the whole Bible. Uh, a lot of times we can look at the Bible as a bunch of segmented books that are all disconnected from each other, but it's actually telling one big story. It's telling the story of our Savior. And today we continue in studying that family tree. And we're in Matthew chapter 1 this morning in verse number 5. Verse 5, last week we left off by talking about salmon. And salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. Uh, one of my family's favorite things, or one of my one of my girls' favorite things right now, is this is the Frank and Julie story. Uh, I don't remember how long ago it was. It was a couple of it was a couple of months ago. And my girls, they love to, they love their bedtime stories. We have a, we have a, like a little bookshelf in our living room. And there is, on the top, there's all of mine and Adriana's nerdy books. And then at the bottom are the fun books that my girls love. And every night they'll pull out those books and uh, they want a story to be read to them. And I don't exactly know how this got started. I think what happened is they kept on picking the same book. I think it was, uh, I think it was Cat in the Hat, and they liked how I did the I, how I did the different voices. So like every day they were bringing me Cat in the Hat. And how many of you can sympathize with me that you can only read Cat in the Hat so many times before the story gets a little old? Uh, so I was tired of reading Cat in the Hat or whatever it was. So I decided that I was going to make up a story for them. And the girls got to pick their names. It was this, their, their names were, the characters' names were Frank and Julie. So I started telling them the story of Frank and Julie. And really, all I did, don't tell them that I plagiarized. Uh, but basically, all I did was I took these two characters, Frank and Julie, uh, a brother and sister, a little boy and a little girl, and I basically put them into different Bible stories. Uh, so we started walking through the Bible, and, and, and the girls just absolutely loved it. Frank and Julie were traveling from place to place, and they ran into people like Ruth, and they ran into people like Elijah, and they ran into people like David. And we just kind of were working through it, and I was just, I was excited to just kind of tell them a, a story where they would be hearing scriptural principles and kind of hearing it in a new way. Well, that quickly turned into their favorite thing. Every night or uh, whenever I'm off, whenever I'm home at their nap time, before nap time, it's always, always, Daddy, can, can we hear the Frank and Julie story? Can we hear the Frank and Julie story? And, and it was going pretty good. Like I was making up things, but then we got, or I was going through Bible stories, but then we got through like the whole story of the Bible. And then I thought, man, now I need to, now I need to start, um, now I have to start thinking up some new material. Uh, so I was working through different things, but then whenever I would tell them the story, what happens is it would always get compared to, it would always get compared to another Frank and Julie story. 
And they'd be like, Daddy, that was that was too short. That wasn't good like like this story. It wasn't it wasn't good. Like, hey, can you tell us the Frank and Julie story where Frank and Julie did did this? And, and they would go through and they just they love that story. And for all of us, we're all we're all attached to story. Uh, I think that's why the majority of the Bible is given to us in a narrative form. It's given it to us in the form of telling us a, a true story. And whenever you walk through the Old Testament, the Old Testament is really one big story pointing to Jesus. But if you're going to go through the Old Testament, I don't know that it gets any more beautiful of a story than the one we're going to talk about today. Because today, as we look at one of these, the Old Testament passages, we're going to talk about the, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Now, just off of, as we get started into this, I'm just curious how many of you are familiar, whenever I say the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth, how many of you are familiar with Ruth's story? Could I see, could I just see your hand? All right, so I think about, about half and half. How many of you say, uh, just so I, I'm sure, just so I know some of you aren't saying, I'm not going to raise my hand no matter what you say. How many of you say, how many of you would be brave enough, courageous enough, even in church, no one will judge you here, I promise, to say, Pastor Dave, I'm not, I am not familiar with the story of Ruth. Would you just be courageous enough? All right, I got a few. Thank you for your courage and honesty. Uh, so the, the story of Ruth. Well, the book of Ruth is probably my favorite Old Testament passage. And, and here is the message of the book of Ruth. The message of Ruth is the beauty of redemption. The beauty of redemption. Uh, Ruth 1 opens up by introducing us to a family. This family, they're a Jewish family. They've grown up in Israel. So by this time, where we are at in our timeline, so remember how we started a few weeks ago, we talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, so this family of Israel started off as a little family. Uh, they started off with just an old man and an old wife, and they had a son miraculously. And then that family grew into, by the end of Genesis, they grow into a family of 70, which I don't know how big your family is, but to me, that's a pretty big, 70 people is a pretty big extended family. In the book of Exodus, we talked about how they were in slavery, and we talked about Nashon, and we talked about Aminadab, and we talked about those men, and how they went through, they grew up through slavery in Egypt. And during that time, they went from a family of 70 to a nation of 2 million people. God rescues them in the book of Exodus, and he delivers them out of Egypt and out of slavery, and he leads them to a land that he had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He's leading them to that land, and they finally make it. And last week, where we left off was with Rahab, where she was a citizen of Jericho. Yet whenever Israel came in, God, in his grace, saved Rahab and her family. And now, we're really where we left off last week, Israel is now a nation, and they live in the promised land. After the book of Joshua is the book of Judges. And here's the book of Judges. And we'll just have a lot of fun going through that sometime because there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of stories. If you like, you know, today's more of a love story. If you like the war stories, then we'll have fun going through Judges. But uh, at some point in the future. But Judges is really, this is Judges. Judges is Israel's now a nation. They've been given everything by God. And they're going through this cycle of life where for a moment they love God. They're worshiping God. And they're being blessed. And then they reject God. They start worshiping idols. And then a bunch of problems start happening. Uh, and then they repent. They turn back to God. And then God restores them. 
And that is, that's how the book of Judges goes. It's, it's this cycle of, of, of worship and love for God, of sin and then, um, and then trial and then repentance, and then being brought into relationship and fellowship with God. That's the book of Judges. And really, that's where Ruth is set, is in this time of Judges. They're in the promised land, and where we pick up in Ruth 1 is actually in a city called Bethlehem. In a city called Bethlehem. Uh, this man, his name is Elimelech. And Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Chilion, they're a leading family in the city of Bethlehem. And when Ruth 1 opens up, Elimelech and his family, who are leading in Bethlehem, they have a big decision that they have to make. Because in Bethlehem, there is a famine. In this, in this tribe, in this region of Judah, there's a famine. So they're having trouble raising crops. Uh, they're not getting a lot of rain. And Elimelech and Naomi are deciding what to do. And I find it really interesting in Ruth because this, this town of Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem actually means house of bread. A house of bread. And, and uh, this house of bread is actually where 1,000 years later, the bread of life, Jesus is going to be born. Jesus is going to be born in this little town of Bethlehem, but a thousand years earlier, <coughs> Elimelech and, and Naomi and Malon and Chilion, they are living here in Bethlehem, and they make a decision that they are going to leave, that they are going to leave Bethlehem, and they are going to move to a different country. They're going to leave Judah, and they're going to leave Israel, and they're going to go to a country called Moab. Now, what we didn't really hit for we didn't really hit last week is in the books that we that we didn't cover a lot Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. There's a lot of law that's given. There's a lot of there's a lot a lot of law that's given, and one of the things that Israel was not supposed to do was to interact with and to move into this country of Moab. Uh, Moab was full of idolatry. Moab was full of a hatred for the one true God. Yet Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Chilion decided, hey, you know what? We're going we're gonna to forget God. We're, we're going to leave Israel for just a little while, for a season during this famine, and we're gonna, going to go to Moab. But immediately what it tells us is that instead of just going there for a season, they end up staying there for 10 years. When the famine was over, instead of going back to Bethlehem, they ended up staying in Moab for 10 years, and they made themselves right at home. And if we could just pause for a second, because I think that there's such a valuable lesson here, is that I'm sure that Elimelech and Naomi, they had the best of intentions whenever they went to Moab. They, they must have been thinking, hey, we've got to take care of our, our property and everything's good in Moab, so let's protect all of our stuff and stay in Moab for just a season. And when things get better in Bethlehem, then we'll come back. Yet what we find is that even with the best of intentions, what ends up happening is their hearts stay in Moab. And isn't that the tendency of our hearts as well? The tendency of our hearts as well. We, we have a tendency to, to, justify, to justify our heart and to justify our actions and, and those kinds of things. But it's just we need to admit and be honest that the natural tendency of all of our heart is to drift from God, is to go towards sin. Like that's the natural drift of my heart is to go towards sin. And that's where Malon, that's where Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Chilion are at. They stay in Bethlehem. They stay there for 10 years, and Malon and Chilion, they actually get married in Moab. Uh, one of them marries a girl named Orpah, not Orca, uh, Orpah, uh, marries Orpah, and then the other brother marries a girl by the name of Ruth. Uh, from some research and from study that I did this week, there's a belief that Ruth and Orpah were actually royalty in Moab, that they were actually descendants of some Moabite kings. Um, if you're familiar with Eglon and if you're familiar with Balak 
that they were descendants of those kings. So they were royalty, and, and Malon and Chilion, they get married to Ruth and Orpah. Things seem to be going good for them for a season until um, Elimelech and Malon and Chilion, they all, they all pass away. In those 10 years of Moab, they, they lose everything. And in Ruth 2, what we find is that where they went out of the house of bread full, they were full of wealth, they were full of love, they were full of togetherness. Ten years later, they're cut. <coughs> Naomi wants to go back to Bethlehem because she's empty. She goes back because she's empty. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, and they've lost their wealth. They come back to Bethlehem, and, and Naomi is really humbled to the point where when you read in Ruth 2, she's even saying, she tells everyone, when everyone sees her, they're like, hey, look, there's Naomi. She says, hey, don't call me Naomi, which means uh, joy. Uh, call me Mara, which means bitter. She said, hey, I'm, I'm going to undergo a name change, like, because now I, I'm bitter, and I'm broken, and I'm empty, and that's, that's how I've come back. But she doesn't actually come back alone. You see, Orpah does stay in Moab, but Ruth makes this beautiful, uh, this beautiful uh, commitment to Naomi. And she says, hey, I'm going to go with you back to Bethlehem. And wherever you go, uh, there I will go. And wherever you stay, that's where I'm going to stay. And your people are going to become my people. And your God is going to become my God. And that's the commitment that Ruth makes. Ruth makes this commitment that, hey, uh, I'm going to go to Bethlehem with you. I'm going to worship your God. And, and, and whatever happens, whatever happens, I'm going to follow your God. It's an amazing story. Ruth and Naomi, they come back to Bethlehem. And they've come back really empty. I told you uh, just a minute ago that Elimelech was a leader in the town. And something that we haven't covered up to this point is that where we're here in the States, in our culture, if you own land or if you own houses— then it's something where, you know, there's no, there's not typically like these family ties. Like sometimes there are. Um, most of the time it's, you know, someday, by God's grace, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to buy a house someday. Like that's, I'm just, like that's a little dream that I have. Um, I'm not gonna go to my dad and say, Dad, I'm gonna go purchase your parcel of land. Uh, and my dad's probably not going to say, hey, son, let me buy you a, let me buy you, to use Bible term, let me buy you a parcel of land. Like, that's just not the way that it goes. Like, typically, if we're going to buy a house, um, there's no, like, family tie to it. You just, you just go and you find a good, you find a price that you can afford and uh, you put in the offer and the real estate agent does all the negotiation and there you buy the house. But in Bible times, land ownership was a lot more sacred. Because remember, this is promised land. This is land that was actually promised by God. So when they got to the promised land, they actually had this big, uh, they had this big moment that you can read throughout Joshua where they actually take the time to say, hey, this family gets this part and forever, this is this family's portion of Israel. Uh, the, your, this family over here, this is your portion of land in Israel. So, so everyone had this sacred land that was given to them by God. But there was also provision that if people made, uh, made dumb decisions like we all have a tendency to do if they racked up debt then a means of a means of paying off their debts was that they could sell their land they could sell their land but but something that's beautiful that isn't really in our culture but what's in there is that if you if you lost your property if you sold your property then there was always a way to get it back because it was a gift for your family from god 
So Ruth and Naomi, they come back and they left with land, but because of the decisions that they made, they actually lost all of their land. They lost all of their property that had been given to them by God. So now where they went out wealthy, now they're destitute. So when Ruth gets to Bethlehem, she she talks to Naomi and she says, Naomi, I'm going to go out to the fields, which was kind of like their welfare system. Uh, The way that their welfare system worked was whenever people planted crops, they would plant their crops in square fields, but whenever they would reap their harvest, they would reap it in circles so that all of the corners were left for the widows and for the destitute. So they would do all that, and Naomi and Ruth said, hey, you know what, I'm going to get out there, I'm going to get out there early in the morning, I'm going to go to those corners of those fields where I'm allowed to, to get, where I'm allowed to glean, and I'm going to start, I'm going to start working there. So that's what Ruth does. Ruth start, gets up early in the morning, she gets to work out in the fields, working in the corners, and it just so happens, um, it just so happens that she goes to a certain field owned by a man named Boaz. Uh, she starts working in his field, and whenever Boaz notices her, he he's actually uh, she grabs his attention right away. Uh, he's like, "Well, eh, eh, you know," and the way that it words is like he's like, "Behold, who is this? Who is this handmaiden?" Like, there you go. You're like your old British movies. Like, behold, this handmaiden. Like, who who is that? Who is this girl? And he's captivated by her by her beauty, but he's also captivated by her character. Which is something that's really cool. What I found this week in my study was that whenever ladies would go, whenever widows would go to like glean in those fields, a lot of times they weren't just trying to reap a harvest, they were trying to reap a man too. Uh, They would go out into the fields and they were trying to get, they were out there trying to get a husband. So that way they wouldn't have to keep on going out to the fields. Uh, So they would do all sorts of things to try to get attention. That was the the custom of the day. But Ruth was just, she was just busy working and that caught Boaz, uh, that caught Boaz's attention. Uh, over the course of chapters 2 and 3, Ruth is a four-chapter book. Over the course of chapters 2 and 3, here's what's going on. Ruth is going to the field to work, and Boaz is being generous to her because he's, he's smitten with her. Um, he's smitten with her. Um, so he does little things. Like he, he goes and he actually talks to her and he says, Hey, listen, you don't have to just get the leftovers in the corners. You can, you can go wherever you want. He invites her over for lunch. Like, I think that that might be the first date in the Bible where he says, hey, come over for lunch uh, and, I'll, and I'll feed you. <laughs> uh, so that's it. That's it. Uh, I think Ruth 3, where, where he invites her over for lunch. And, and it's all going good. He even, tells, he even tells the workers, like it was part of Jewish law, that if someone was carrying around grain, like a, a farmer, if a worker was carrying grain and he accidentally dropped some, that he had to leave it for, he had to leave it for the destitute so that they could come behind and they would have food. Um, so Boaz was telling his workers, he was telling his employees, hey, listen, whenever you're in front of Ruth, make sure you drop some extra on purpose. Man, some of you single guys, some of you single guys, take note of this, okay? Uh, so he's, yeah, he's making sure he's invited, he's take, making sure that, he's, uh, t- that she's taken care of, he's watching out for her, and, and, and everything is going really well. And Ruth actually goes back to Naomi, and she's telling Naomi about Boaz, and Naomi's really excited. Because she's thinking, hey, uh, hey, he's going to be interested. He's going to marry you. It's all going to be great. But Boaz doesn't actually do anything. He doesn't, act- he doesn't actually uh, do anything. So finally, and we don't, like, we're going to, I'm going to preach through the book of Ruth at some point in, down the road. So we'll, like, really spend time on all of it. So today I'm going to give you kind of like an overview. 
But in Ruth 3, Naomi gives Ruth some kind of awkward advice that for you and me, like, I, I just, I wouldn't recommend this. Uh, so, but Naomi tells Ruth, listen, uh, Boaz needs to marry you. Uh, he's your redeemer, which we'll talk about in just, he's, he's a redeemer, which is something we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, so here's what you need to do. Since he's not, since he's not doing anything, you need to make the first move. So she says, hey, get dressed up and put on some ointment so you smell good. And then I want you to go, and, and Boaz is working, and he's going to be working late, and I want you to go approach him. And we're not going to get into all the details of it today. You can read about it yourself if you want to. But basically, Ruth proposes to Boaz. So she proposes it, and, and here's what we find out is that Boaz is very interested in Ruth, but there's two reasons why he's not pursuing her. Now, there's, there's two reasons why he hasn't actually proposed to her at this point. Uh, one reason is because he's a little bit older than she is. So he even says, like, oh, man, I'm so thankful. Like, it, he, he's like, I'm so thankful because you didn't actually go after and you didn't pursue the younger guys. Uh, which it's not, we'll, we'll take more time later uh, to talk about that difference. But don't let, that, don't let the, the idea of that scare you too much. And then the second reason he says that I haven't pursued you is because whenever it comes to our law, um, yes, I have the legal right to marry you, but there's actually someone, uh, there's someone who has the right to redeem your family first. So he says, I'm going to get this all worked out so that you will be redeemed. And the idea is, I want to redeem you, which we'll talk about that in just a moment. So in Ruth 4, he makes this, he, he puts together this plan where he talks to the first redeemer, the, first, the person who has the right to, to take care of Ruth's families, to take care of Elimelech's property, and has the right, um, to, has the right to take care of uh, Ruth and to take care of her family. He, he approaches this guy, his name is, his name is Tob, uh, from what history tells us, and he makes this big scene in Bethlehem where Tob is put into a corner so that Boaz can marry Ruth. In Ruth 4, uh, after everything is taken care of, he redeems Elimelech's family tree. He, he redeems it. Uh, he, takes, he, get, he restores all of their family property. And then in this beautiful moment in Ruth 4, Boaz and Ruth get married. And we actually talked a little bit about the wedding ceremony a couple of weeks ago whenever we talked about Judah and Tamar. Remember when we talked about the blessing that they pronounced where they said, hey, God, may your house be like the house of Perez, and may you be like Leah and Rachel, and may God bless your home and God bless your family. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Now here's where it's actually happening, this, this wedding ceremony. So at the end of the story, at Ruth 4, Boaz and Ruth, they get married um, in love. It's this beautiful story, and Boaz redeems all of the family tree, all of the family property, and takes care of Ruth. Now let's talk about redemption for a moment, on this idea of redemption. We've hit a little, a little bit, but I want to make sure that we understand it this morning. So the idea of redemption, we talked about how this land was promised, and if someone lost their property through the decisions that they made, there was a way for a family member who was a, called a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, could go and he could buy back the land or he could pay off the debts so that the, so that the land would stay in the family tree. Another aspect of redemption was the actual family portion. If, if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about how if a, if a woman died without kids, 
um, that it was the responsibility of a family member, usually a brother, to marry the widow and have a family with her. And we talked about the reason for that is where today, uh, where today we have things like life insurance policies and we have ways, like I have a way where Adriana is taken care of if I were to suddenly pass away. They didn't have those opportunities. So this was their means of, uh, of life insurance and caring for, caring for widows. That's how they had it set up in place. And this redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, a set person had the right to take care of the land and to take care of the family. And what Ruth is all about is all about this love story of Boaz redeeming Ruth. And it actually ends by giving <coughs> the, the family tree of Boaz and Ruth after. It says at the end of Ruth 4, it says how Boaz and Ruth, they had a son and his name was Obed. And Obed had a son and his name was Jesse. And Jesse had a son and his name was David. And people talk about why is this book of Ruth here in, why was the book of Ruth written? And from a historical standpoint, people believe that the prophet Samuel, uh, the prophet Samuel actually wrote this book so that he could let Israel know about the family tree of David the king. But what we also know is that it's so much bigger than just this David the king of Israel, this Davidic dynasty. It's about the ultimate king of kings who would be born through the line of David. Jesus Christ. But when we look at this redemption, when we look at this story of redemption, what does Ruth's story teach us about the family of God? As we look at Jesus' family tree, as we look at this part of the story, what does it teach us about the family of God? Here's the first thing that it teaches. It teaches us that redemption corrects failure. Redemption corrects failure. At the beginning of the story, I told you about how Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Chilion, they decided to leave all of the good gifts that God had given them to move to Moab. And in all of their decisions that they had made and all of their choices that they had made, they ended up losing everything. But God in his grace, that even though they had walked away from God's good gifts, God provided for them. God provided for Naomi a redeemer who would correct all of their mistakes, who would, who would make all of their wrongs right. And that is what the Redeemer did. And it's a beautiful picture of our Redeemer because our Redeemer uh, came in the form of a servant and he was born in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion of a man, he became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. And Jesus, though he were rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that our Redeemer came to correct all of our failures. You see, you and I were born in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sin. And yet, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, even though we were broken, and even though we had walked away from the good gifts of God, the Bible tells us, God still provided a Redeemer who could make all wrongs right for you and for me. And it happened through our Savior and his death on the cross. You see, while we all are sinners, while we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, God sent us a Redeemer named Jesus to correct all of those wrongs. And my friend, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can be redeemed. Your sin can be forgiven. Your sin can be covered by the blood of Jesus because he paid the price for you and for me so that our sin could be corrected and so that we could be restored. 
Church family, could I share with you? For those of you who know Christ, what does that mean for us? What does this gospel that we stand in, what does that mean for today? If your sin has been forgiven, if grace, if we believe that grace is greater than our sin, I know just looking around this room, because I know that I'm one of them, because I'm in the room, that a lot of times we can struggle with the shame and guilt of our past, can't we? We may know in theory that we are, that we're forgiven or that God, that it's under the blood, but a lot of times it's easy for us to, to bring it back up into our minds. It's easy to just continue to think about the, the mistakes that we've made, about the sins we've committed, and think, hey, you know what? It, it, it's just, it, it's, it's always there. Like David said, my sin is ever before me. But could I just share with you this morning that because of redemption, because of Jesus, and because of what he did for us, the Bible says in Psalms that God has cast away our sin as far as the east is from the West. Let me give you a little science lesson for a second. If we were to all, like we're gonna take a backpacking trip to the North Pole. Now you can go and you can head north and you can keep on going north and north and north and north and north. But once you hit the North Pole, then you're going to start going south. Like you can't, like that's what happens. If you go, you go north to the North Pole, once you pass the North Pole, then you're going south. And you go south and south and south and south and south until you hit the North Pole. In other words, there is a point on this earth where north and south meet. Here's the beautiful thing about it, our sins being cast as far as the east is from the west. Did you know that if you start traveling east, there is no east pole? So if you start traveling east, you go east and 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 east. Or if you want to travel west, you can go west and 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 west. Here is the point that he's making, that there is no point where east and west touch. If you start traveling east, you'll always go east. Where if, there, if you go north, you'll eventually go south. And if you go south, you'll eventually go north. But God has cast our sins as far as, our, as the east is from the west. In other words, here's what God says. Because of Jesus, when Jesus has forgiven our sin, whenever we bring up our sin to God, he says, what sin are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. That's what God did for us through the Redeemer, our Savior, Amen. Jesus. Redemption corrects our failure. But the second thing that we see is redemption changes our identity. Redemption changes our identity. You see, for Ruth and Naomi, when Naomi came back, you remember I told you how Naomi, she left, they left full, and then she comes back and she says, hey, don't call me, don't call me, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara because I'm bitter. That was her identity. Why did her identity change? It changed because of death. Like her identity was identified. She was identified with the dead. Ruth was identified. Hey, that is the widow of Malon or Chilion. I don't remember which, who she was married to. But hey, that, that's the widow of so-and-so. In other words, her identity, when you said, who is Ruth? They would say, Ruth is the Moabitess who is the widow of Malon. But whenever she was redeemed, when she was redeemed, she was no longer identified with death. She was identified with life. Whenever Naomi came back, she was identified with death. But at the end of Ruth 4, she's not, not, she's not identified with death anymore. Naomi is identified as the grandmother of Obed. 
They're saying, hey, you are blessed because, uh, because the love that you have is better than if you had, if you had seven sons. Here's, she's not identified with death anymore. She's identified with life and with love. And because of Jesus, because of the gospel, your identity is not an identity of death and it's not an identity of failure. It's an identity in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. When, we're, when Christ, who as our life shall appear, then we shall, we shall be in glory with him. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has changed our identity from being identified with death to being identified with life. And whenever we live this out, Ephesians says, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, hey, hey, you are now children of light. You are darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. If you have been made alive by Jesus Christ, then walk every day, live every day, not in the death of your sin, but the life that you have in Christ. It changes, redemption changed their identity, and the redemption that is found in Jesus changes ours. And if I could just say this to you, is that this redemption changes eternity. This redemption changes eternity. You see, something that I think is just absolutely beautiful about this passage of Ruth is that whenever Malon and Chilion died, for Naomi, that was like, that was it. So I guess if I could put it this way, uh, you can call me old-fashioned if you want to, but I have, um, I have two girls, and I had those two first. And then when we were pregnant with our third, can I just be honest with you for a second? I was freaking out. Like, I was like, I was a nervous wreck because I was like, what happens if the third child is another girl? And there's a couple reasons for that. One was we had a missionary that came through one time at, at the church that we were at in Baytown. And the missionary gets up and he says, everyone, I want to introduce you to my special case. And he said, this is Kaylee, this is Kylie, this is Callie, this is Carly. And uh, he listed his five daughters' names and they all started with the letter K. And I had an intense prayer service right there And whenever he was giving that introduction. Lord, please never let that be me. <laughs> So I was just like, I don't want, I, don't, I just, I don't know that I can handle uh, having like, like four or five girls. You can judge me later. Um, but then I really wanted a boy because, call me old fashioned if you want to, but I wanted a son who would carry on the Cripps family name. Y'all can laugh at my name Cripps later too. But I wanted someone who would carry on, who would carry on my family name. And I was like, you know, if, and then to make matters worse, my brother, my young, my little brother, um, he had a boy. He had a son before I did. So I had I had Jules in Brooklyn, and then he had Jackson. So I was like, this can't be. Like, the family name cannot be carried just through my brother. I need a, I need a son. So I prayed all the time, Lord, please give me a boy. Please give me a boy. Please give me a boy. Um, well, then I finally had, I, we found out that we were going to have Witten, and I was so excited because the family name will live on. You know, I, I know that that's a little silly. Like, I understand that. Um, but it was a really big deal. It was a really big deal in Eastern culture uh, back in these days. And for Naomi to lose her two sons and to lose her husband, and those sons didn't have any sons, then their family line would die out. It would die out. There would be no more. Like if you were to look in the if you were to look in the family tree, it would say, you know, there was a and a had Malon and Chilion, and that would be it. 
that would be it. But because of the Redeemer, whenever they had Obed, Obed was also connected to Elimelech's line. In other words, here's how the genealogy could have looked. It would have looked, Elimelech had Malon, and Malon was a father of Obed. Because of the redemption that happens here in this text, their eternity changes because their family go their family line goes from dying out to living on and even more beautiful than just living on just like you know ultimately it doesn't it doesn't matter if my family name lives on like that like it just doesn't matter but this family line this family name this family tree that lives on it it goes all the way down to Jesus in other words if any family tree if any family line impacts eternity, it's this family line because of the redemption that happens in this text. And could I just say that because of the redemption of Jesus, it changes eternity for you and for me. You see, the Bible teaches that for all of us, we'll spend eternity somewhere. We'll spend eternity in the presence of God forever. If we, if we know Christ and we're in his family, we'll spend eternity with Christ forever, or we'll be separated from God forever in a place that the Bible calls hell. And my friend, because of a Redeemer, you and I were condemned to spend eternity apart from hell, apart from God and hell. But because of Jesus Christ, because he redeemed us, because he saved us, we get to enjoy the presence of God for eternity. That is what our Redeemer accomplished for us. That's what your Redeemer accomplished for you. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't know that you'd spend eternity with Him, then today you can trust Christ. Today you can be born into God's family. As we close today, as we close today, there's one, there's one little element that I think is just absolutely beautiful about this that I would like to leave you with. Is that in the book of Ruth, He's, Boaz is never just called, uh, as far as I as far as I remember, he's never just called the redeemer. It's always called he's always called the kinsman redeemer. Now we don't use the word kinsman very much, but the word kinsman basically just means relative. In other words, in order to be in order to redeem Ruth, in order to redeem Naomi, in order to redeem all that was given to them by God, they had to be a kinsman. They had to be a relative. And that's why it was so significant when Ruth shows up in Boaz's field, because he is a kinsman redeemer. Here's why that's important. It's because in order for us to be redeemed, Jesus had to become our kinsman. He had to become our relative. But this might be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made equal with God. But he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, 
even the death of the cross. In other words, if I could just say this, is that the reason why you and I can be redeemed is because Jesus was willing to become a man, because Jesus was willing to leave the glory and the splendor of heaven so that he could be identified with you. So that even in Hebrew, in Hebrews 2, it says that he wasn't ashamed to call us siblings. Uh, he wasn't ashamed to call us brothers. That's how Jesus identified with, with us. So whenever it comes to salvation, whenever it comes to forgiveness, whenever it comes to redemption, it's not just, hey, you're forgiven, walk away, walk away, and that's it. It's you're being invited into a relationship. That's why Jesus came, was so that he could be related to you and so that you could be related to him. That is the idea of the kingdom redeemer. Could I just ask you a question? Uh, and I want, I'm going to ask you, and I want you to consider this. All right, you already know it, but I want you to think about it. When's the last time that you stopped and you really thought about it? that God desires a relationship, a personal relationship with you. Think about that for a second. God desires a personal relationship with you. It's not something that's just corporate. It's not just something that's the moment of the 1030 service. It is that there is a God in heaven who desires personal, personal relationship with you individually. That's why he came. That's why he became our kinsman redeemer. Yeah. So that he could bring you in a relationship with himself. So that he could bring you into a relationship with God. Today, when, what, is the, what is the family tree of Jesus teach us today? There is redemption in Jesus, and it's the redemption of a kinsman redeemer. Let's love him more. Let's love him more. Amen. Let's, let's worship him more. Let's walk with him more, because he is a beautiful and wonderful kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. And thank you that you are a wonderful kinsman redeemer. We don't deserve any connection to you. Yet because of your grace, you became a man and you humbled yourself to the cross. And because of that, we have, we have life in you. Lord, I pray that today as we leave today that we would remember that you are our wonderful redeemer. that we would take our personal relationship with you seriously because you desire a personal relationship with us. And for that, we are grateful. Father, I ask that if there's any person here today who does not know Christ as their own personal Savior, Lord, I ask they would receive you today and be born into your family. In Jesus' name.